Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Hillside. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Micah chapter 5? We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 this morning in Micah chapter 5. If you have a hard time finding the book of Micah, um, join the club, honestly. <laughs> Maybe the best uh, way to tell you how to get there is just probably to go to the table of contents at the front of your Bible and just find the page number and start there. It's a small book, and it's a minor prophet, and it's in the Old Testament. Um, but while you get there, I will remind us that we are in a Christmas series, sermon series here at Hillside, where what we're trying to do during these days that are leading up to Christmas is we are trying to get sort of the whole picture, the reality of Christmas. And so last week we started in Genesis chapter 3 and we saw the problem of sin that started in Genesis and um, it demanded Christ's advent. It demanded Christmas, that problem of sin. The first flicker of the gospel, we talked about this last week, is found in the first book of the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 3 um, and it's in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, where uh, God says to Satan that, um, that someone is coming, that is going to crush your head, and you're going to bruise his heel, and it's just this picture of the fact that God is sending his son. Why does God give us this glimpse of redemption in Christmas, of Christmas in Genesis chapter 3? Well, <clears throat> it's because God is so much better than we could ever think or imagine, he is so good, and the Christmas plan began before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so last week what we talked about, and quite honestly we're going to do it again this week, is that the main point is this, that Christmas is all about the character of God. It's all about the character of God. Christmas points us to the goodness of God. God, even in our sin and even when we don't deserve it, he reaches out to us. God, even in the wreckage of sin, the things that we've brought about on ourselves, moves towards us in his son. Christmas is about the character of our, character of our good and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and rich in mercy, God. Praise God for that. Today, again, we're going to run into the same sort of thing as we look at the piece of Christmas that's found in Micah chapter 5. As I was preparing this week, uh, this, there was a story about peace that just my, in my own life that just kept coming up for me as I was prepping for this sermon. And so I figured I would share this memory with you, uh, of this story that's a little bit different for me to start with an illustration like this, but I wanted to share with you um, a story. So about 20 years ago, I went on my first ski trip. Has anybody here been skiing before? Anyone? Yeah, some of you? Cool. All right. So about 20 years ago, I went on my first ski trip. I was actually, had just started a new job as a youth pastor at a church in Montana. And so part of being a youth pastor there meant you take kids skiing. Um, and so I was about 22 years old. I'd never been skiing before in my life. And my first attempt was to go to the ski place in western Montana. So if you're a parent and thinking, I would never send my kid with that guy to go skiing, then I wouldn't either. But a lot of parents did. And so the short version of this experience is that I, it, it went really well for me, actually. I had fun. I didn't die. Those are two kind of key things for having fun. And one of our youth leaders who had been skiing his whole life, he told me that the main thing that you need to learn here is just how to get on and off the chairlift. That's kind of key. 
And so I had uh, played hockey growing up, and so skiing actually felt kind of natural for me, just the stopping motion, which is really important when you're skiing, being able to stop. And so it was a good day for me, and by the end of it, I had worked my way up to my first black diamond, which would be a hard run on a ski hill. And so I, my confidence was really high in this skiing thing, and after my first day of skiing, I decided um, I'm going to go out and buy my own skis and boots and poles and a helmet. And uh, at this point, I'm, Julianne and I are engaged, but I have my first job, so I have money to buy those kinds of things. So I went out and did that. And I was a fish, an official skier in my own mind and probably well on my way, hear this, uh, to being the best skier that Nebraska had ever seen. So Julianne's brother, who was, this is a couple weeks later, who was in high school at the time, he invited me to go skiing with him. And <clears throat> he was an excellent skier. And I'm, I'm not even kidding when I say that he regularly did backflips and frontflips off of jumps when he was skiing. In fact, the first time we were skiing, he did a backflip and a spin at the same time and landed it. And I thought, is this my future? This is amazing. But... <laughs> He was good at moguls, and honestly, uh, he could probably ski better than I could walk, which isn't saying a lot, but he was a good skier. And so uh, he invited me to go skiing with him. He's in high school. Um, we went to this mountain in Whitefish, Montana that the locals call Big Mountain, and it was tough. And I want all of us to know that in this situation right now at 42 years old, if David, my brother-in-law, invited me to go skiing, I would just say, no, thank you. But... In 2004, I was just barely um, engaged to Julianne, and what I really needed in my mind was to impress Julianne's little brother who was 17 or 18 years old at the time. And so I said, yeah, let's go skiing together. I'm a good skier. That would be fun. So I, I will never forget his words as we got onto the first chairlift. I remember him looking at me, and this is, remember, my, only se my second time skiing, and he pointed to his left and he said to me, I was kind of thinking we could just take it easy this morning and ski some of those trees over there on the easier run. And I looked over to where he was pointing and I saw zero of what he called easier runs. But I uttered these words, yeah, that sounds good to me. I was kind of thinking the same thing. So we got to the top of this run and I looked into the trees on my second time skiing. And David, Julianne's brother, said to me, are you sure you want to ski through the trees? You could just do that easy run over there and meet me at the bottom. And I said, oh, no, I'm definitely a tree skier. I'll, I'll see you down at the bottom, like, if you can keep up, you know. Praise God, David said to me, okay, well, if you don't get down to the bottom in the next 10 or 15 minutes... I'll just plan to come back up here and ski down and find you. And he took off, and I started my descent too, and within, I like to think three minutes, but it was probably 10 seconds of getting into those trees, I got stuck next to one of them. Luckily, I didn't hit one of them, but I got stuck next to one of them, and I just sunk into a tree well that was deep, and I ended up buried in snow. And in fact, the more I moved with these big skis on my feet, I found myself deeper and deeper into this tree well that I could not get out of. I, I, I was so stuck, and there was no way out for me. And in hindsight, it was probably a very dangerous situation, but 
I was an idiot, and so I didn't even think about how dangerous it was. So I decided to stop moving, and I decided, well, I'm just going to wait for David to return for me like he said he would. What was so strange, and the reason this story kept coming up for me this week is I, and I still remember it so vividly, for whatever reason, I had this absolute sense of peace sitting buried in snow, completely unable to release myself. I didn't freak out. I had no anxiety, and if you know me, that's kind of rare. I was fine with what was happening until my brother-in-law got back, and I sometimes think back to that moment, and I wonder why I had so much peace in the midst of what should have caused me absolute chaos. Why was I so at peace in the tree well with no way out? I think that the obvious answer is this. I trusted David's character, and so I trusted that he was coming back to get me. He, he, he had said that he would return for me if I didn't meet him at the bottom of this run. And I knew he would come back, and I knew that he would know what to do when he got back. And so I had peace because I trusted him. I had hope in his promised return. Maybe, maybe you can see where I'm going with this this morning, but the very quick end to this story is that he did return, and when he did, I actually didn't see him. I just heard him dying of laughter, and he had his flip phone open, and if you want to know what that is, it's like this retro thing that people used to have, but, and he was recording me so that he could show my fiance how stupid I was, but ultimately, he got me out, and uh and I was safe. And the reason, again, that I share this story is because I just kept thinking this week as I struggle personally with fear and anxiety about life and about ministry and about what's God going to do with my kids and all of these kinds of things, I wonder what it is that makes me not trust God and his promises the way that I trusted my brother-in-law and his promise on that day. Why can I have this theology that I know personally so deeply that God is in complete control and God is on his throne and I know that God sent his son for me and I know that he will never leave me or forsake me? How can I know all of this stuff with my head that it's all true, but when I'm in trouble, I seem to forget these things? Or, or at least these things have no functional impact on my anxiety, and this morning we're going to continue in the story of Christmas with the prophecy of Christ's coming. And really the beauty of this passage is this, while it is written to Israel, it points all of us to the mighty hand of God in Christmas. And so my hope for us today is that it will infuse us with real and practical hope and peace and trust for God in all of the seasons in all of our lives. As we go there this morning, I want to start with this statement, and I, it's very, very simple, but I think it's really important, and here it is. In our lives as believers, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we lose our hope when we take our eyes off of Jesus. We lose our hope when we take our eyes off of Jesus, and I know that that sounds outrageously simple, but usually the simplest things are the most profound things in our lives. And the reason I, that I mentioned this at the beginning of this message is this, and I, I'll just make it personal to me. Again, sometimes when my world is swirling around me, sometimes when things seem upside down in my life, I can exist 
like I'm stuck down in the bottom of a metaphorical tree well, and so anxiety reigns in my life. I I can find myself getting really self-focused, and in those moments, the first thing to go for me is my hope and then my peace. The simple truth is this, I lose my way in life when I take my eyes off of what God has done for me and what God continues to do for me in Jesus Christ. I I forget the truths of the Bible, or at least they just don't mean anything to me when I take my eyes off of Jesus. I forget that God is in control when I take my eyes off of Christ. I forget that God rules and reigns when Christ is not my focal point. I forget that he is the answer to the problem of my sin. I forget that as simple and as Sunday school as all of this sounds, I am sure that the answer to what I really need is always found in God through Jesus Christ. And again today in Micah chapter 5, we're going to see that Christmas is a story of hope and it's a story of peace. Christmas is a story of all of these things in all situations. So the absolute truth that I'm convinced that we need as we go to God's word this morning is the truth that we will always lose our hope if we take our eyes off of what God has done for us in Jesus. So my goal here today would be that once again we leave here with our eyes squarely fixed on the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. Look with me at Micah chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. It says this, Now, Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and uh, treads in our palaces. Then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men." Again, today I'm not really able to be exhaustive with this text. In fact, we'll just be really in verses 2 and 4. But I want us to notice three important things that give us hope in God in this Christmas prophecy. And as we look at this text, let me just very quickly give us a little bit of background about what is going on in Micah, in the book of Micah, and in his time. It's 700 BC, so it is 700 years before the coming of Jesus, and the people of Israel are being overwhelmed by the Assyrians. So if, if you know some about the Old Testament, there's a northern kingdom of Israel at this time and a southern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken into captivity um, by the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom of Israel is about to be taken into captivity. And so all of this is a result, and we need to know this, of their own sin and rebellion. They're sort of living in the evidences of their own problems. So as a result of their predicament in which they find themselves, this is what they believe. They believe these kinds of things. They believe themselves to be helpless. They know themselves to be humiliated. They feel alone. And it would appear to them that they were actually abandoned by God. And so the question is, what do they do? 
Where is there hope for reconciliation and peace? If you read all of Micah, you see that in a lot of places in Micah, he's saying they're doomed. They're going to be taken over by the Assyrians. So where is there hope for reconciliation and peace? Think about this with me for a second if you can. This is sometimes really hard for us to get our brains wrapped around because we know Jesus has come as a baby. All of this is happening to these people 700 years before the birth of Christ. They're in trouble. They are struggling to have hope. They see no way out of their issues. How do you think God's people feel in this time when Micah has prophesied their certain doom? How do you think they they feel? What are they facing? Well, they're facing, again, oppression. They're facing humiliation. They're facing this sense of helplessness, this overwhelming feeling that comes from being overtaken. And apparently, they're feeling abandoned by God. In other words, the people were likely walking around saying things like this. Is anyone in control of this world that we live in? Or does anybody know what is going on around here? Does anyone understand how I feel? Do you realize what this is like? And these are likely the kinds of things that the people of God were saying to each other. And I think probably some of us, when we're in trouble, are saying these kinds of things when our world is out of control. Where is God? Is anybody in control of any of this? And so Micah comes into the midst of this kind of scene sent by God to say to these people and to you and me, yeah, this is a fact. Your sin has gotten you here. We read about it in Genesis 3 last week. But here is what God is going to do. Look at the hope and the peace that you can have when things are out of control because of what God is doing on your behalf. And so Micah prophesies in Micah chapter 5 what God will do for his people. And in the midst of this prophecy, for both them and for you and me today is so much hope. So much hope. Look with me at three peace-inducing, hope-infusing things that Micah reveals to us about God in our passage this morning. Let's start first with verse 2, where where something is revealed about God. Look at verse 2, and we're going to look at it under this heading, you and I can have hope because God is not dependent upon human merit. God is not dependent upon your ability. Look at verse 2. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So where do I see this truth about God in this verse? Where do I see that God is not dependent upon human merit? I see it in Bethlehem. And this is huge, and I really don't want us to miss this, but notice what Micah is saying here in verse 2. He is deliberately setting Bethlehem in contrast to other big cities in Israel. When he says this, he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, But you, you will be the source of our true and lasting hope. So Micah actually adds to Bethlehem the word Ephrathah. Why? He's doing this to distinguish it from the other town of the exact same name that is in the land of Zebulun. Meaning this, when he says Bethlehem to these people, it isn't like he's saying New York City or L.A., Bethlehem Ephrathah was so obscure that it needed to be distinguished from the other obscure towns in Israel. 
And so Micah adds that Bethlehem was so little that it wasn't even listed among the clans of Judah. So understand this with me. Bethlehem wasn't even in the phone book. If you don't know what a phone book is, it's like a flip phone. But I I read this week that Bethlehem in the days of Jesus only had a population of 150 to 200 people. That's a small town, isn't it? For, for reference, compare Bethlehem to towns like Volin, which I read on the internet, which never lies, that uh, the, that's 157 people. Or Burbank, which according to the internet has 129 people in it. And so when Micah says, but you, Bethlehem, we should pause here and know that God has chosen something small to bring about something magnificent. And many of us come to this verse like this and we think, and definitely rightly so, but we think that God focuses on Bethlehem in verse 2 because that's where David is from and it's a fulfillment of a prophecy. And it is true that Bethlehem is where David is from and it does fulfill a prophecy, but I want us to notice something that I think the people would have noticed and that is this. Part of the point is that God is making something magnificent out of something very small. Why does this matter so much? Why does it matter so much that God chooses something small and quiet and out of the way and does something there that changes the course of history and eternity? Here is why. Because when he acts this way, we cannot boast in the merits of men, but only in the glorious mercy of God. Nobody gets to say, yeah, of course he chose Bethlehem. Look at how amazing Bethlehem is. Look at the human glory that Bethlehem has achieved. And this is really beautiful, at least to me it is. Why? Because this is actually the way God works, isn't it? He loves to use the small and the weak and the unlikely to accomplish his great designs. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to to nothing things that are. Why? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so it is with Bethlehem Ephrathah, not Jerusalem, in which the Savior of the world would be born, because that is how God loves to work. He doesn't pick the big, mighty thing. He picks the unlikely instruments to accomplish mighty ends. A savior born to peasant parents, squatting in a stable, not dwelling in a palace, a baby laid in a cattle trough, forced to live the first few years of his life as a political refugee. He was despised and rejected of men. He was betrayed and brutalized and hung between two thieves. Unlikely means, yet the very means by which God saves the world. That's God's surprising pattern. He ordains small, unimportant towns like Bethlehem, Ephrathah. He chooses the weak and the foolish and unlikely means of the cross. He is not dependent upon human merit. I like the way that John Piper says it when he writes this. The deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation, on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. 
He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. And this is really, truly the best news for us as we look for hope and peace in our world. This truth is really the story of our salvation as we look at Christmas. God does not shower the gift of salvation on the basis of human merit. He has no regard for human greatness. He delights to shower his love upon weak, sinful, unlovely men and women and boys and girls like all of us. And I want to stop here for a minute and say something maybe that sounds a little bit cheesy or quippy, and I'm okay with that. But I wonder how many of us tend to put God into the box of our expectations. And, and this first point here should be screaming to us this reality, God can make a way where there seems to be no way. This is the story of Christmas. This is our God. So we can have peace and hope because our God is not dependent upon human merit. But look again at verse 2 and notice also that our hope and our peace come when we look to Jesus because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Verse 2 again says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is uh, to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So listening to this verse from Micah would have made Micah's hearers, the people of Israel, think of the promises of God regarding the covenant God had made with David, from of old, from ancient days. They would have had passages from 2 Samuel chapter 7 ringing in their ears or Psalm chapter 89. Look at Psalm 89 verses 3 through 4. It says this, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Meaning this, David's son would sit upon his throne forever. It's, it's as though God were saying to the people of Israel, when I say of old or from ancient days, I mean that I'm going to turn back the clock all the way back to the beginning, and your attention should rest not on Jerusalem, but on Bethlehem where David's story started, because another David, a greater than David, is coming from the line of David who will fulfill my promises and bring my covenant to realization. And so Micah is saying God will keep his promises by bringing about our Savior from David's family. And what is fascinating to me about this here is this, Micah's prophecy, we got to remember this, is against the backdrop of Jerusalem being under siege. Think about this, Micah is reasserting the certainty of this promise of God, not at a time when Israel is sinking toward, or not at a time when Israel is doing well, but when they are sinking towards extinction. Micah witnesses the destruction of the northern kingdom that has already happened, and he's predicting the fall of the southern kingdom. And in the midst of all of this, he firmly believes that God's promises to God's people are going to happen that God will establish David's throne forever. Micah is reminding the people that when uncertainties seem to overwhelm our hopes, God will keep his promises in Jesus Christ. And this is so practical for us. Let me tell you how. I was thinking this week of how Christmas for me has always been just one of the most wonderful times of the year. I mean, I love Christmas. 
I have so many wonderful memories of gifts and family and worship. And I would imagine that lots of us feel the same way. When I look back on Christmas throughout my life, there's so much joy. But the older I have gotten, and I understand I'm not super old to a lot of you, and I'm really old to some of you, but the older that I have gotten, the more every area of my life has sort of been stained by sorrow and loss. And, and I would guess this is true for some of you, and I don't mean to depress anyone, but honestly for me, this feeling of loss includes Christmas this year. I don't, I don't talk about this a lot, but I know a lot of you are aware that my dad passed away on Christmas Day last year. And so as we get closer to Christmas, I'm struggling with this season. I am, oh gosh, it's been hard for me. It doesn't seem as happy as it has in the past. And why would I share this with you? Because if Christmas was about being jolly, then I would be lost. Because jolly isn't how I feel all the time. But one thing that has ministered to me so much this week is this verse right here. Why? Because Micah is saying that terrible circumstances do not nullify the promises of God. God is a God of promises. He has spoken his word and it will come to pass even when things are hard. Christ will return, Christ will sit on the throne of David, and every knee will bow. Christ is my wonderful counselor, he's my mighty God, he is my everlasting father, he is my prince of peace. Look at what Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 through 8 say, it says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is amazing news for Christmas. God keeps his promises. Look at Jesus. And there's nothing more firm in all of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says it like this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Him being Jesus. Praise God for that. Is there sorrow to be had? Sure. But God is good and he will make it all right. So for you and for me, there is so much hope in this prophecy because we can see that God is not dependent upon human merit, and God keeps his promises. And then the final thing that I want us to see this morning is in verse 4, and that is this, God shepherds his people. Look at verse 4 again, it says this, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So God's purpose in sending his son was not only to show that he isn't dependent upon human merit and that he keeps his promises, but also, and this is really important for us, he sent his son so that his people could be shepherded. I, I, here's a reality that I think we often forget. Everyone needs a divine shepherd. You and I may not feel that need in our own strength, but we will feel that keenly when we go through the valleys of life without the comfort of our shepherd. 
We need a shepherd, and Christmas is a reminder that God has sent us a shepherd in Christ. John chapter 10, verse 11, and then also verse 14 says it like this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So he said that he calls us by name, he goes before us, his sheep follow him because he knows their, or they know his voice, and Jesus is the new and better David, the great shepherd, the one for whom Micah waits, to whom he points us to, in whom the hopes and fears of all the years are met. He is our king and our great good shepherd, and as our shepherd, Jesus knows us intimately, his word, his voice directs us. And we follow him, his rod and his staff, they comfort us. He pursues us when we stray and he brings us back safely. He leads us to green pastures and by quiet waters, he restores our souls. He judges our enemies. He defends us from those who are thieves and robbers who come only to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus is our good shepherd. Can I just encourage us with this this morning? This is a message to preach to yourself for Christmas this year. For, for some of us, I would guess not too unlike the people in Jerusalem in Micah's day, we are living in complete uncertainty and maybe in complete fear. And here is a message to preach to your heart this morning. Jesus is your good shepherd. He knows you. He has words to guide your steps. He will lead you to green pastures and quiet waters. He will restore your soul. He is your king. And under his rule and reign, you are safe. There is a Christmas message to preach to your heart this year. I have a king today in Jesus Christ. And under his rule and reign, I am safe. Praise the Lord for King Jesus. Worship team, you can come on up. I want to end this morning with the beginning of verse 5 and say this. This peace that we are talking about today, the peace of God, the peace that we are all seeking, this sort of how can I be at peace in the metaphorical tree well of life, that peace is a person. Look with me again at the beginning of verse 5, which says this, and he shall be their peace. I started off this morning by saying that we lose our hope and our peace when we take our eyes off of Christ. Why is this true? Well, because Jesus himself is our peace. And this is hugely important for us this morning. Jesus provides and he maintains our peace when our souls are under assault. And I know that this can be hard to believe when you are stuck and you're waiting for help and life seems out of control. The fact of the matter is this for us. The harder life is, the harder it is to believe that Jesus is our peace. And so the question should be this for us today. How do I get this peace which is so widely and clearly available to me in Jesus Christ when I don't feel his peace? I don't feel this peace, so how do I get this peace? Here is how. You must know him. You must know him. And this is, it'd be easy to say this is a message for someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, but this is as much for the person who follows Christ as it is for the person who doesn't follow Christ. To know God's peace, we have to know Christ. 
To acquaint yourself with Jesus is the way to peace. To know him and trust him is to know peace. So what does that mean for us this morning as we seek peace and hope in our lives? As we seek to believe what is true about God, how do we do this? Here is how. We know Christ in his peace by meditating on the merit of his blood and his prevailing intercession and his sufficient grace and his unbreakable promises. Knowing Christ means meditating on those things until we believe them. He is our peace. Micah prophesied of a ruler who would come from Bethlehem, a ruler who is going to be our peace in this morning and through this season. Let's intentionally just stop and meditate on the one who is our promised peace so that our hearts can be kept in perfect peace. This is the promise of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word again. God, God, thank you that Jesus is our perfect peace. God, thank you that we can trust you because you're not dependent upon me, because you are a God of promises. And God, because you came and sent your son to shepherd us. Lord, this morning I pray that we would be a people that are marked by peace because of those realities. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.